With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When the ice breaks. When the hot shake in the town and the moxie in the winter. The end of my love for now and you've spent your summer. Hello everyone. Welcome to episode number 83 of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast right here on the Hockey Podcast Network. Each week, we take a trip back in time down memory lane and we bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago written by some of the greatest sports writers of all time. This week, we're looking at May 24th to May 30th, 1971. It's playoff time. Big stakes, bigger promotions. DraftKings Sportsbook is putting you courtside with a chance to turn $5 into 200 That's 40 to 1 odds on any basketball game. All you have to do is pick any team that's still in the hunt for the trophy. And if that team wins, you receive $200 in free credits. That's right. Pick any team that's still in contention, bet $5, and if that team wins, you cash $200 in free credits. All it takes to claim these 40 to 1 odds on the basketball team of your choosing is placing a $5 bet on that team to win. Don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook also offers great odds and promotions on baseball, hockey, and so much more all week long. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code TH. PN when you sign up to turn $5 into $200 in free credits. Bet on the basketball team of your choice to win their next game, and if they do, you claim $200 in free credits. That's promo code THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Wager paid out in site credits. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com Sportsbook for details. Have a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Of course, in addition to DraftKings, 
We are also sponsored by Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, and they're instrumental in giving us access to all the great stories that we bring to you from 50 years ago. And we're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn. I just recently moved back to Port Coburn. We're happy to be back there, and we'll be making a few chips, trips to the Breakwall. They're open for takeout right now, and very soon we'll be out on their patio. If you like what we do on Twitter every day and uh, through the hockey season and every week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe to this podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free podcast like this show right now, but we have some really neat stuff in the special content that we bring to our Patreon subscribers two or three times a month. That allows us to delve uh, far uh, deeper into a lot of the subjects we cover and uh, we give you better insight into the stories that were going on 50 years ago. So this episode, what we're doing, uh, we're the first week past the awarding of the 1971 Stanley Cup and the week's uh, post-Stanley Cup final are usually a very interesting time, at least back in the 60s and in the 70s. Uh, the Stanley Cup, as we say, had been awarded and teams were already heavily engaged in uh, trying to get their teams ready to compete the following season and, of course, being ready for the amateur draft and the meetings in Montreal, the NHL meetings in June. The uh, NHL rosters were usually frozen a week after the Stanley Cup was presented uh, or thereabouts and then unfrozen when the uh, meeting started in June. So this was a time where some trades often took place and uh, most of the time they were uh, not great blockbusters but if you think back to 1967 there was a huge trade between Boston and Chicago at that time that changed the fortunes of both franchises so you pay attention at this time to what's going on I guess that's why I just love this period of time right after the playoffs for all the hockey news that was coming out and that's what we're going to start with this week a bunch of quick hits on some off-season news that was breaking this week so with the departure of Gary Young who was their chief scout for the Boston Bruins with him going to California Golden Seals to become their general manager the Bruins had to fill that spot and they wanted to do it pretty quickly well they hired veteran hockey man Red Sullivan to become their chief scout he comes over from the Pittsburgh Penguins with whom he'd scout, been scouting for for the past couple of years after he had been removed from the coaching position with the Penguins and replaced by Red Kelly so Red Sullivan now with the Boston Bruins Big news in Buffalo, New York this week, not about hockey players or anything like that, but something as a group, as part of a group of, of the first season ticket to holders with the Sabres, we were all excited about the roof at Memorial Auditorium being raised 24 feet to make way for 4,800 seats in a balcony that was going to be adding added that would boost the seating capacity of the odd to 15,200 fans. It's a pretty interesting process, actually, how they, how they accomplished this feat. All but four of the 24 steel pins, which have held the roof in place since the arena was built 30 years ago, have been removed. The remainder, one at each corner, 
will be taken out this week. The new pins, four inches in diameter and two and a half feet long, will be used to attach the roof trusses to the new building columns, which of course will raise the height of it. The old pins, which were suspected to have been damaged or corroded over the years, were in excellent condition when they took them out. So the pl- the old building, she was in pretty good shape when they started the renovations. Installation of the cable bracings was completed early this week, and a test of the jacks that will lift the 2,000-ton roof are going to be made immediately. The roof raising is expected to take eight hours, but project engineers have acknowledged that it might take a little longer, but it starts at 8 a.m. on the uh, Tuesday of this week. The odd roof will be the largest ever raised, according to spokesman for the Techstar Construction Company of San Antonio, Texas, who will perform the task. Some Minnesota North Stars news. Five members of the North Stars will visit military hospitals in Japan, Guam, and the Philippines under sponsorship of the USO and the American Defense Department. The 17-day tour beginning uh, Thursday of this week includes goalie Cesar Maniego, defenseman Lou Nanny and Barry Gibbs, and forwards Murray Oliver and Ted Hampson. We mentioned that this was the roster freeze week and that some uh, trades would probably be made. Well, there was a little bit more activity by the North Stars. They acquired home state products Gary Gambucci and Bob Paradise from the Montreal Canadiens just before the deadline. Gambucci is a left wing from Hibbing, Minnesota, and Paradise is a defenseman from St. Paul. They were obtained from the Canadians for cash and a rearrangement in the amateur draft agreements between the teams. And I honestly don't know how they figured that out because you know what's been going on since the very first expansion draft in 1967. Ren Blair and Sam Pollock of Canadians have been making all kinds of intricate, complicated deals that involve draft picks and expansion draft picks and who knows what. They just uh, made another one now, and here's what the report says happened in this one. Apparently, the North Stars and Canadians have reversed their first-round choices in the 1972 amateur draft in which Minnesota holds two first-round picks. Montreal previously had the rights to use the lower of those two picks. Are you confused yet? Because the rest of us had been between Montreal and Minnesota for the last four years. And just from what we understand, minutes before the trade freeze on, uh, I think it was the 24th or 25th at midnight, uh, the North Stars made another deal. They acquired the captain of the New York Rangers, right winger Bobby Nevin. The Rangers sent Nevin to Minnesota for a player to be named later, which doesn't sound like much, but you have to see who this player is going to be. Now, the player will not be named until the conclusion of the NHL meetings in June. The reason for this is quite simple. Rangers are in a crunch for protecting people in the intra-league draft. So what they're doing, they're trading Nevin to Minnesota, who of course will protect him. They will also protect the player, whoever he might be, to be sent to the Rangers after the meetings. So what the Rangers are actually doing is buying a protected slot on their roster, and Minnesota's taking care of that for them. 
The guy rumored to be going to the Rangers for Bob Nevin is veteran right winger Bobby Russo. And as far as we could see at this time, it made a lot of sense to us. Here's a bit of a goofy story out of St. Paul, Minnesota. Governor Wendell Anderson was leafing through a stack of bills on his desk, awaiting his signature when one abolishing the game of ice hockey caught his eye. An aide to uh, the Governor Anderson asked if they really had passed that bill. Martin Sabo, who is a a political ally of Governor Anderson, was listed as the main author of this piece of legislation. He was going to veto it, Anderson's aide said, until several staff members could no longer contain the secret that the bill was a phony. It had been slipped into a stack of bills the governor was checking before he was signing them into law. The bill said hockey produces an overabundance of aggressiveness, mayhem, and pugnacity among players who sometimes become politicians and continue to be super aggressive as they were as players. Because of this ill effect, the phony bill stated, the game of hockey is thereby abolished. Violation carried a $10,000 fine and two years in jail just for playing puck. Well, Ken McKee of the Toronto Star reports this Boston Bruins playboy philosopher Derek Sanderson said in Toronto this week that the National Hockey League president Clarence Campbell was responsible for him not making a second appearance as an expert analyst on the CBS system telecast of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Sanderson said he was signed to do two telecasts, but was replaced before the second one even came around. Sanderson says, I never heard officially. Campbell never notified me, but I heard he objected because I was smoking on camera and I didn't have a tie on. Sanderson said it wasn't the first time his TV exploits had been interfered with. A segment of tape he wanted to use on the Johnny Carson show was vetoed because there was a fight in it. Le Journal de Montreal, newspaper in Montreal, is reporting this week that Gordie Howe has played his last National Hockey League game and he will officially retire from the Red Wings at training camp this fall. Quoting what he called a reliable source, Jacques Beauchamp says in his daily column that the 43-year-old Howe finished last season in pain from that arthritic wrist and decided to retire before what would be his 26th National Hockey League season. A little bit more trade news for you now. The California Golden Seals acquired forward Bobby Sheehan from the Montreal Canadiens in a straight cash deal that amounted to about $40,000, which just happens to be the league waiver price. So what the Seals did was just say, we'll pay the forty grand now and take Bobby rather than worry about waivers. But the Seals would have had first pick in, in any waiver move, so it really didn't matter which way they did this. Doesn't matter at all because at the end, Bobby Sheehan is now a Seal.
For those of you unfamiliar with Bobby, and I got to watch him in Junior A with the St. Catharines Blackhawks. Bobby was hurt during this past season. He appeared in only 29 games for the Habs. He did score six goals and added five assists. He's a 5'7", 165-pounder, and he had split the uh, 1969-70 season with the Canadians and uh, with their farm club, the Montreal Voyageurs, where he played pretty well. Canadians were busy knowing that uh, they have a roster crunch as well and they don't really have the ability to uh, protect everybody they want to. Uh, they uh, sent Mar- or acquired, I should say, Marshall Johnston, who was recently named the American Hockey League's best defenseman. They acquired Marshall from the Minnesota North Stars. Johnson played for Cleveland in the AHL, was Minnesota property. They sent him to Montreal in exchange for a, another defenseman, a little uh, kind of a youngish guy. His name is Bob Murdoch. Canadians also sent veteran right winger Leon Rochefort, another guy they know they couldn't protect, so they sent him to Detroit for a minor league player named Kerry Ketter and an undisclosed amount of cash. Ketter, by the way, in case you're wondering, uh, hasn't played in the National Hockey League yet. He was with Baltimore of the American League last season. The Red Wings made a significant trade with the Buffalo Sabres, or the other way around, however you want to say it. The Red Wings acquired Sabres goalie Joe Daly, one of the few left not wearing a mask in professional hockey. Joe was the main backup to Roger Crozier over the Sabres' first season in the NHL. And the Red Wings, to get Joe Daly, gave up a couple of young players, center Don Luce and defenseman Mike Robitaille. Both of these guys had been acquired by the Red Wings from the New York Rangers in separate trades during the past season. The Wings also lost a player when center Jim Kralicki announced his retirement from professional hockey at the age of 23. Jim just said he did not have it in himself to do what's required to uh, withstand the rigors of pro hockey, whatever that means. Jim just is going to be happier in regular civilian life and not playing pro hockey. You can't blame him for that. Another late Canadians trade. This one was with Vancouver. Not a, a blockbuster anywhere but in Vancouver where they were having headlines about the uh, the Canucks. Uh, Can- Canadians sent young defenseman uh, Greg Body to the Canucks for a third-round draft pick. And the uh, uh, headlines in Vancouver were really quite, uh, well, one headline said that Bud Poyle in his search had uncovered a body. The Blues were active, and now that Scotty Bowman has left their organization, the overall philosophy might have changed. Scotty was very resident to trade first-round draft picks. He, he went on record quite often as saying that that's why the Blues had been successful. They weren't uh, surrendering first-round picks like other expansion teams were. But new, or if you call him old, GM Lynn Patrick, he's not so shy about that. Uh, Patrick sent the Blues' first-round pick in this year's amateur draft to the New York Rangers for a 26-year-old goalkeeper by the name of Peter McDuffie, who this season played in the Central Hockey League with the champion Omaha club, the New York uh, farm team in that league. The Western Hockey League, uh, a lot of people think they're on their last legs. They try to put themselves off as the best uh, minor league team in North America better than the American League they like 
to say, well, they're considering expansion possibilities and elected officials Tuesday as they concluded a two-day annual meeting this week. League officials firmed up the schedule and also reviewed applications from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Tucson, Arizona, Edmonton, and Calgary, Alberta. President Bill McFarlane, who's actually taking over on June 1st, he's succeeding Gene Knesiewicz, but he's speaking for the league now, and he says that expansion's always been a distinct possibility with the league. Uh, Bill says, we also feel we have major league potential in every city in our Western Hockey League. Canadian Amateur Hockey Association was meeting this week as well, and here's an item that came out of that for the first time. Since hockey was introduced to the Olympic Games in 1920, a Canadian team will not be represented at the 1972 Winter Olympics to be held in Sapporo, Japan. Earl Dawson, president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, made that announcement after a meeting on Tuesday of this week. Dawson, who is in Thunder Bay for the CAHA's week-long annual meeting, said in an interview that Canada will definitely not participate in the Olympics in 1972, and when this country does return to world competition, we'll have to work our way up to the Olympics. The CAHA stand, of course, is that there will be no international exchange of teams between Canada and Europe until Canada is allowed to use professional players in world championships. Dawson said Canada would return when open tournaments are allowed, and at that time they would probably be asked to start in the B section of the world championship. Maybe we can send a, a team of first-timers. First to play that game or maybe send baseball players because we're not allowed to send our best players why even participate CAHA is right on this and I'm glad they're staying out of it Former NHL goalie Al Rollins, who's made quite a career for himself in coaching and managing in various minor leagues, has taken over uh, in a new position. He is the coach and general manager of the Western Hockey League, Salt Lake City Golden Eagles. Last year, Al was coach at Spokane of the Western Hockey League, but something wasn't right there, and Al said, I just thought it was time to make the change because of some things that are going on in Spokane. Gus Bodner had held the position in Salt Lake City last year, but his contract was not renewed, and Al Rollins was asked to take over. The owner in Salt Lake City, however, is a very hands-on guy who doesn't know a lot about hockey. Unfortunately, Al, you better have a lot of patience. A coaching change in the National Hockey League this week. The Flyers made their much anticipated switch when they gave incumbent bench boss Vic Stasiuk his walking papers. Rumors of a successor include the usual suspects, Scotty Bowman, Harry Neal, and even Al McNeil, who is still the coach of the Canadians at this point. General Manager Keith Allen said the new coach doesn't necessarily have to have NHL experience, and that gives us a clue that maybe they're looking at the Omaha Central Hockey League coach, Freddie Shiro, who is in the employ of the New York Rangers at this point. We keep hearing this week that the American Hockey League is going to readily approve the Buffalo Sabres' request to reactivate their dormant American Hockey League franchise. Remember the Buffalo Bisons? Well, the Sabres actually have the rights to the Bisons' uh, AHL franchise, and they're looking 
to get it started again. The Sabres want to place this team in Dania, Florida, which is just outside of Fort Lauderdale. There's a new 8,000-seat rink under construction there, and it is thought that Joe Crozier, the old buddy of Punch Imlac, he would be named the general manager and coach of the club, which will be called the Florida Buccaneers. Now, this is interesting. You can bet that if there's a... This is coming out of the middle of nowhere, an AHL team in Florida. I will bet that Joe Crozier has some money in any operation that's going to be undertaken by the American Hockey League in Dania or Fort Lauderdale. Another possible American Hockey League franchise move this week could see the Montreal Voyagers heading to Halifax, Nova Scotia, where they played a few games last year. All-star teams for the NHL came out this week. The four Boston Bruins, who scored 105 or more points during the 1970-71 regular NHL season, have been named to the first team in the NHL's all-star balloting. Two of them, defenseman Bobby Orr and center Phil Esposito, were unanimous picks to the first team, and why wouldn't they be? Joining them were Boston teammates right-winger Ken Hodge and left-winger Johnny Busick, Rangers goalie Eddie Jackman and Montreal defenseman J.C. Tremblay rounded out that first all-star team. The second team, very interesting, consisted of the Toronto Maple Leaf goalkeeper Jacques Plante, defenseman Brad Park of the Rangers and Pat Stapleton of Chicago, center Davey Keon of the Maple Leafs, right winger Ivan Cornwaille of Montreal, and Chicago's great left winger Bobby Hull. For the first time... In 16 years, Gordie Howe, the Detroit Red Wings, is not a member of either the first or second team. And for the first time in eight years, Bobby Hull was not on the NHL first all-star team. Can't let this week go by in uh, the 1971 offseason without talking about Scotty Bowman. Well, he's denying a report. Uh, a Canadian newspaper report that he's going to coach the Montreal Canadiens next season. He indicated that he might accept a scouting job for an NHL team and operate out of his home in St. Louis. The former uh, general manager and coach of the St. Louis Blues said, I've heard all kinds of speculation, but I pretty well made up my mind three weeks ago to wait until the league meeting in June or possibly until the fall to decide what I'm going to do. Now, Scotty acknowledged that he and his wife are reluctant to leave St. Louis, but he said that he had put his suburban home there up for sale, but he also pointed out that disposing of the home might take up to six months. Bowman said that he had received several coaching offers, but he declined to identify, of course, the clubs involved. He also said he passed up one opportunity to be a general manager, and that offer is believed to have come from the California Golden Seals. And really, Scotty is a brilliant guy. Why would he want to get involved in in that shit show? Scotty said, right now, there aren't a lot of managing opportunities in the NHL. And that kind of tells us that he would rather get in to management than uh, return behind the bench strictly as a coach unless of course the perfect job were offered scotty was asked about replacing al mcneil as coach of the montreal canadians and scotty said i'm positive mcneil's going to be back replacing him after the canadians won the stanley cup would be like the cardinals not having johnny Keenback back after winning the baseball championship in 1964 
Oh, wait a minute. That's what happened, isn't it? Well, Sammy Pollock couldn't resist, and he chimed in, calling the reports just complete nonsense. The Halifax Chronicle said Al McNeil, Al's an East Coaster. Well, that that, uh, paper said that Al McNeil has, in fact, resigned as coach of the Stanley Cup champion Montreal Canadiens, and the Chronicle Herald reported that Scotty Bowman would be the successor as well. But in Montreal, Canadiens general manager Pollock says the reports of McNeil relinquishing his post are, quote, nonsense. McNeil wasn't available for com- for comment, though. Uh, Al was holidaying in Florida and wouldn't be back in Montreal until the draft meetings next week. And that's really curious. You've got your draft meetings next week and your coach is not involved in the discussions or the preparation? Hmm. Well, Pollock said you can be sure nothing's going to happen until the meetings next week, which kind of led me to believe that Sam knew something was going to happen. The Canadian Amateur Hockey Association this week, uh, in some Junior A news here, has suspended the president and general manager of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A St. Catharines Blackhawks for one year. That suspension is uh, caused by his team defaulting the uh, Eastern Junior A final championship against the Quebec Remparts. If you remember, the St. Catharines team refused to return to Quebec because they felt the risk to the players' safety was too great after their team was attacked during the first two games of that playoff series in Quebec City. And we have another little Junior A note while we're at it. The Oshawa Generals have hired former Maple Leaf great Gus Bodner as their new general manager coach. Gus, you know, held a similar position at Western Hockey League Salt Lake City last season. Gus is now back in the area he loves in the uh, greater Toronto area. He replaces Ed Rigel, who had resigned from the Generals. And for personal reasons, Ed said his relationship with the team was still strong. He enjoyed his time there, but he just felt it was time to pursue other interests. And that opened the door for Gus Bodner and you know Gus will be happy to be coaching in the OHA Junior A Series. I don't know whether Jim Coleman had a few too many wobbly pops or he just was feeling a little mischievous but he gave us a story this week on May 24th uh, about the awarding of the Stanley Cup Only this May 24th, the Dateline Associated Press, is May 24th, 1980. And we'll just give you Jim's report because it's pretty interesting on what he saw happening in 10 years in the National Hockey League. The report begins. The Boston Bruins won the Stanley Cup for the first time in 10 years on Monday night as they defeated the Los Angeles Kings 3-2 in the 17th game of the best of 19 championship series for the World Professional Hockey Championship Stanley Cup. Vladimir Davidov, Boston's brilliant rookie left winger from Yakut, Siberia, scored the winning goal at 17:33 of the third period when he flipped the 15-foot wrist shot past goalie Sven Olafsson of the Kings. Davidov's goal was set up by Bobby Orr, the egg-balled Boston veteran who surprised the Kings by making one of his very rare rushes over the L.A. Blue Line. As the startled Los Angeles defenseman converged on Orr, he slid a perfect pass to Boston's tricky left winger. 
or is the only player still active in hockey who was a member of the Bruins team which won the Stanley Cup in a four-game sweep of St. Louis in 1970, or is also the only Canadian player in the National Hockey League. The NHL, of course, was founded in Canada, but Canadians rapidly lost interest in their native sport after Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver franchises were transferred to Miami, Atlanta, and Houston in 1974. As the siren wailed to signal the conclusion of Monday night's game, P.V. Heffelfinger III, president of the Columbia Broadcasting System, stepped in front of the television cameras to present the Stanley Cup to Yuri Sushi, the captain of the Bruins. Assisting Mr. Heffelfinger in the presentation ceremonies was Sidney Solomon IV, the National Hockey League president. Mr. Heffelfinger ruefully said it's high time we had a genuinely suitable trophy for the world championship of hockey. He gave the cup to uh, Sushi, the Boston captain, and it's a battered old trophy. And uh, Heffelfinger believes that his league now needs something a little flashy and a little more up to date. Heffelfinger remarked that I think it's appropriate for us to retire this old mug permanently to a glass case in hockey's official Hall of Fame at Bloomington, Minnesota. Mr. Solomon stepped toward the microphone to add a few words, but his comments weren't heard by the worldwide audience because the CBS network had contracted to show at that precise juncture a two-minute commercial for the Ford Automotive Company. The final two and a half minutes of Monday night's game were played in an atmosphere of considerable confusion. After Davidov had scored for Boston at 17.33, the television crews immediately shoved two cameras to center ice to prepare for Mr. Heffelfinger's presentation of the cup. And at that point, the quality of hockey on view deteriorated quickly. Players frequently were following over the television cables, which snaked across the ice. And there was one rather serious injury. A cameraman was struck in the face by a flying puck, but he courageously refused to leave his post in great hockey tradition. Newspaper reporters were barred from the Boston and Los Angeles dressing rooms following the game. The exclusive rights to all post-game interviews had been assigned, had been sold, under terms of the new multi-million dollar contract to CBS and uh, the National Hockey League was fully supportive of this particular move. Now, to make matters worse, unfortunately, the post-game interviews weren't even shown on television. The time slot immediately after the hockey game had been reserved for a fireside chat by United States President Spiro Agnew. The interviews with Boston and Los Angeles players will be shown by CBS on a tape delay next Saturday afternoon. And won't that be special? To mollify the newspaper reporters, Mr. Heffelfinger agreed to genially submit to a mass media interview in his suite at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel exactly one hour after the presentation of the Stanley Cup. During this subsequent interview, Mr. Heffelfinger was flanked by Mr. Solomon, who smiled and nodded agreement to each of the television tycoon's statements. Heffelfinger said, I think we have proven conclusively that television has brought hockey out of 
the Backwoods. Tonight we had the largest audience in the history of entertainment. Heffelfinger said that all the games in the playoffs were seen not only in North America, but also in Europe and in Asia. The Bruins' victory was seen by 50 million viewers. Heffelfinger went on to say the National Hockey League has profited from our advice. We persuaded them to reduce the regular season to 40 games for each team. Then we had eight teams in the playoffs, all competing in the best of 19 game series. This permitted us to complete the hockey season early by May 24th. The CBS president went on to say that there was none of the old-fashioned nonsense which caused widespread criticism in 1973 when Canadians were still managing the NHL. In that year, 73, the hockey season didn't end until June the 2nd. Mr. Heffelfinger was undisturbed when a reporter mentioned that attendance at NHL games had declined 25% in the 1979-80 season. Last night's final game in Boston was attended by only 9,326 spectators, although admittedly the Boston Garden hasn't been painted since 1972. Also, many of the old wooden seats have rotted away and the Boston Fire Marshal has instituted proceedings to condemn the weather-beaten old rink. Addressing this, Heffelfinger said that the live audience actually attending hockey games in all the arenas throughout the league is no longer important. The NHL still gets 90% of its revenues from television. As a matter of fact, Heffelfinger went on, the teams may sell their arenas for real estate developments and in the future, all National Hockey League games would be played on artificial ice in huge television studios. After Heffelfinger ended his press conference, a publicist from CBS handed out press releases itemizing the television outlets for the Stanley Cup series. The list of television outlets revealed that the Stanley Cup games were seen in almost every part of the world with the exception of Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. The CBS spokesman explained that for the purposes of network television, Canada is no longer regarded as a major market area. So it's the end of May, and yet Maple Leaf Gardens was uh, filled with hockey fans and National Hockey League players on the ice. But this was only a facsimile of the real big league game, as a feature movie entitled Face Off was being filmed at the Carlton Street Cash Box, the brainchild of one of the Maple Leafs uh, directors, Johnny Bassett, who thought it would be a good idea to have a real honest-to-God hockey movie and so that's what's happening at Maple Leaf Gardens this week. We saw this uh, session, Mike Walton, his psyche back in place, taking a bow as the second star of a Maple Leaf Boston Bruins game and being resoundingly booed by the Gardens faithful. This was just a few minutes after Walton had raced in on Leaf goalie Jacques Plant and scored a goal completely scripted, and then he crashed unceremoniously into a cameraman perched by the post to catch the action. This sounds like like the piece I just did with Jim Coleman. Now, the hockey pieces that they're filming here are actually going to be blended with about 40,000 feet of National Hockey League film footage uh, that Agent Court Productions had acquired to make this movie. 
Uh, Walton's mishap kind of delayed the shooting for an hour, uh, not to mention the fact that it wrecked some very expensive camera equipment. The attendance uh, at this thing was also a little bit less than folks anticipated. Uh, Sponsors of the movie actually thought that there'd be 15,000 people at Maple Leaf Gardens, but that was before Bobby Orr withdrew uh, from the cast for some reason. But they did raise uh, $3,500 for the children's section of the Princess Margaret Cancer Hospital. There were about 5,000, we believe, in the stands. and they paid 75 cents for adults and 50 cents for kids for the privilege of watching the movie being filmed. Ken McKeon, the Toronto star, he, he thought it was kind of surprising that given that hockey's basically religion in Canada, nobody's tackled the task of having a, a, an honest-to-God, really uh, authentic, a movie about hockey in Canada. The film's director is a Canadian by the name of George McCowan who came back from Hollywood to handle the assignment and he figures the reason no good hockey movie's been made is because previous hockey films were simply disasters and most sports films never make it because they fail to grab the realism of the sport. McCowan said that realism is very important to this movie. Many of the characters are easily identifiable with real people or their composites of two or three real people. The storyline could be uh, 1971, a young couple, a cocky young superstar athlete, and a pop rock singer have trouble making it in each other's worlds. The male lead is a fellow by the name of Art Hindle, who's 26, and the girl is Trudy Young, a 20-year-old. And 50 years later, Later, almost 50 years later, a couple years ago, I had a chance to sit down with Art Hindle and Trudy Young at uh, the Ultimate Leaf Fans home in Toronto, Mike uh, Mike Wilson. Mike had a, a reunion of sorts for the for this movie, and Art and Trudy were there, along with two hockey players who appear prominently in the movie, Jim McKenney and Jim Dory. It was a really good evening. Now, Hindle's uh, character in, in the movie, Billy Duke is his name, is weaned to the NHL from a brilliant junior career by a sharp young lawyer. Hmm, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Subsequently, Billy Duke has problems with his coach, who is also beset by domestic troubles. The coach is played by fine character actor John Vernon. And of course, there's a muckraking sports writer hovering in the background, waiting for Billy Duke to make one false step. And of course, he does make that false step after a phenomenal start to his NHL career. And one thing we, we didn't know was that Jim McKenney actually was considered for the role that Art Hindle ended up playing, a professional actor. Jim McKenney's not an actor, but he was considered for the role, the lead role in the movie. Uh, Jim knew he wasn't good enough as an actor back then. He did very well in television post-NHL career. And they said, McCowan, the, the uh, director, said that Jim did very well in his audition, but his lack of experience for a major role uh, was just too much to carry the film. And that made it just a little too risky. Well, Jim wasn't really upset. He knew he was no actor, but he said what did disappoint him was that when they chose art, we looked so much alike that I couldn't even be used as a, uh, as a stand-in or an actor in a lesser role because he looked too much like art, and he was actually Hindle's film double for all the hockey sequences. 
In fact, Jim McKenney looked so much like Art Hindle in 1971, several hundred youngsters who mobbed Hindle for autographs after the workout, and he was in civilian clothes by then, they didn't believe that it wasn't McKenney. They were asking for autographs. Art signed his name, and no one could figure out why Jim McKenney would do that to them. Art actually said about all the autograph seekers that he didn't know how Bobby Hall could manage to do this night after night after night. Art obviously not used to being asked for autographs so much. Another little-known fact about Art Hindle is that he once attended a Toronto Argonaut football rookie camp. At least George Armstrong was in the movie, and he has a couple of really interesting speaking scenes, but he was feigning a little bit of anger because he had a love scene, a kiss or two. It was cut from the movie to tighten up the script, and he was very disappointed that he wasn't able to do those scenes, tongue-in-cheek from George Armstrong. Uh, George plays the veteran player who counsels the rookie, and uh, Derek Sanderson of the Bruins, uh, replaced Orr, by the way, and has a prominent supporting role. Racing driver George Eaton was a member of Trudy Young's uh, rock, rock band. The movie's going to run about 115 minutes, and there's going to be about 20 minutes of hockey in the movie. Uh, it's uh, going to have a tragic love story between the two young, very talented people, making up all the rest of the drama that's going to make up the story. The coach's uh, problems will provide kind of a subplot. That's the, uh, I guess you could say, the domestic problems that John Vernon's character will undergo. While the love story is a central theme, there are no explicit love scenes for Hindle and Miss Young. This is still 1971, remember. We feel a lot of youngsters will want to see this movie because of the hockey angles, the production man explained, and we don't want to risk getting a restricted over-18 tag. So that's this week's show, boys and girls. And what did we learn in the week after the Stanley Cup playoffs had finished? Well, we had a lot of trades at the NHL roster freeze deadline, but there was nothing completely earth-shattering taking place in this group of deals. We got to look at the future of the Stanley Cup playoffs 10 years from now, according to Jim Coleman of the Toronto Telegram, and we learned a bit about a movie being filmed at Maple Leaf Gardens this week, that movie being called Face Off. We're going to have a show again next week as the uh, off-season arrives. Uh, some of the stories we're going to work on, uh, the Flyers will pick their new coach. We have some pre-NHL meeting talk as the NHL conclave ra- uh, rapidly approaches. And we get news of a Montreal Canadian star announcing his retirement. And it's not... John Bellable. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all of his hard work. He's going to continue with it right through this off season. Andy produces podcasts. He's working on some other projects. But if you want to put a podcast together, get a hold of me and maybe Andy can help you out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. If you ever get a chance to see them perform live, they put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and the sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from the files of the Toronto Star, Toronto Globe and Mail, and all the fine publications found at newspapers.com. The podcast is on the Hockey Podcast Network every week. 
You can find us every day during the season on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, and we will be uh, uh, continuing with periodic reports from the Twitter feed uh, during the offseason. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And of course, your favorite podcast app will have the podcast as well. Uh, thanks uh, again to everyone who tunes into our show. It's been a great 1970-71 season. We really enjoyed bringing it to you. We're uh, a little busy at the moment. We are moving back to our hometown of Port Coburn, Ontario. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be, uh, it's going to be a pretty hectic time, but we are going to get our shows out every week for your enjoyment through the summer. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-